This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, December 27th, 2018, episode 65, concerning pawns and politics. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Well, we finally reached the end of our winter holiday chess series. We're maybe not entirely done with William Caxton's The Game and Play of the Chess. Uh, I may have occasion to come back to its actual portraits of the different estates at some point in the future, but we're concluding today the part of the book that actually addresses the mechanics of chess, however lightly. We heard about the king and queen, the alphans, who are judges in Caxton and bishops in our modern game, the knights and the rooks, and now, trudging up at the end of the procession, we have the common people, the pawns. As I mentioned at several points already in this series, in Caxton's source text, the book of Jacobus de Chasolis, the pawns have all been assigned, down the line of the eight of them, distinct vocations. They aren't just a faceless mass of peasant foot soldiers, they're a cross-section of society, mostly town society, uh, the rural trades largely get collapsed under the laborer, um, and they're all presumed masculine, but it's still a higher degree of social awareness than you might expect in feudal society, where all eyes tend to point upwards. And yet, it's not actually unusual to find this interest in the diversity of work and lifestyles among the people in medieval texts. Now, they're usually reduced to types. Um, I complained in our Miracles of Henry VI episode that we have very little reliable information about peasant lives, and that is still true. Uh, despite this interest in cataloging all the different professions that contribute to the functioning of society and the economy, our authors tend not to get down into the finer details of the people's lives and experiences. Even the Canterbury Tales, which has all these wonderfully individualized portraits, doesn't really tell us all that much about what it was like to be a miller or a reeve or a merchant. Now, as I said, the common people described in the game and play of the chess are categorically male. This creates a bit of a conceptual problem when one of them advances to the opposite end of the board and gets promoted to queen. That's not how queens work. Uh, this wasn't an issue in the Eastern versions of the game, since the queen wasn't the queen. Instead, it was the counselor or vizier. A king can have as many counselors as he needs, but the transformation of a male laborer not just into a female, but into a whole higher degree of dignity, does not sit well with the medieval European mind. You might well say, it's just a rule in a game, what's the big deal? Um, but look at all the text we've been hearing in this series. A lot of mental energy has gone into rationalizing these mere rules and finding in them deeper, important truths about society. So this problem of pawn promotion was taken seriously. The answer constructed is obvious enough. Promoted pawns don't become queens. That would be absurd. Uh, they become servants of the queen, and are thus delegated the power to move as the queen moves. The other ramification of this is that we need a word to refer to these pieces that aren't pawns anymore, but also aren't queens. Luckily, there was a word ready to hand. This was 
fears or furs, either F-I-R-Z or F-E-R-S, uh, which comes from the Arabic name of the piece. Fears is vizier. Uh, those have the same roots. This was in use as a name for the queen in European chess, um, but gradually through the Middle Ages, vernacular words meaning queen came to be more common, and furs became available to be repurposed as the term for a promoted pawn, safely segregating them from the actual queen. That's a nice, simple version of the story. It's not the whole picture. Uh, there is this weird middle phase where the sex change seems not to have been an issue, but polyamory was, so that the real problem was a king having multiple queens, and this was solved by not allowing pawn promotion unless the queen had already been removed from play. I suppose there might be a fiction there that the pawn who reaches the other end of the enemy's side of the board is not becoming a queen, but has ransomed the original queen and brought her back on the board in his place. Um, I haven't actually read anything that says that that logic applies. Uh, and at any rate, it seems the strategic possibilities of having more than one queen in play on a side was too interesting to prohibit. And so the furs is deployed to solve the problem. All right, let's finish off our text with the final two chapters of The Game and Play of the Chess, as translated by William Caxton from the book of Jacobus de Chasolis, uh, with some modifications. As with last episode, I'm not going to rehash all the chess terminology. If you're just joining us, I'd advise going back to the start of this little series at episode 61, and you'll get all the glosses you need, or a good number of them anyway. Uh, I will say, I haven't remarked on this yet in the series, um, but reading the preposition to for, which Caxton uses a lot, uh, it just means before or in front of, uh, which I think is pretty clear from context, but it does make me feel like I'm talking toddler English or baby talk. It feels like it should go hand in hand with spaghetti or I'm a scared. I know it's a perfectly cromulent middle and early modern English word, but it kind of gives me the giggles. So now that I've maybe ruined listening to Caxton for you, or made it better than ever, let's proceed on to the end of book four of The Game and Play of the Chess. The seventh chapter of the fourth book, of the issue of the common people. One issue and one moving appertaineth unto all the common people, for they may go from the point they stand in at the first moving unto the third point right forth to for them, and when they have so done, they may afterward move no more but from one point right forth into another, and they may never return backward. And thus, going forth from point to point, they may get by virtue and strength that thing that the other nobles find by dignity. And if the knights and other nobles help them, that they come to the furthest line to for them where their adversaries were set, they acquire the dignity that the queen hath granted to her by grace. For if any of them may come to this said line, if he be white as laborer, draper, physician, or keeper of the city bin, they retain such dignity as the queen hath for they have gotten it. And then returning again homeward, they may go like as it is said in the chapter of the queen. 
And if any of the pawns that be black, as the smith, the merchant, the taverner, and the ribald, may come without damage unto the same utterest line, he shall get by his virtue the dignity of the black queen. And ye shall understand, when these common people move right forth in their line, and find any noble person, or of the people of their adversaries, set in the point on any side to for them, in that corner point he may take his adversary, whether it be on the right side or on the left. And the cause is that the adversary's been suspicious that the common people lie in wait to rob their goods or take their persons when they go upward right forth. And therefore he may take in the right angle to for him one of his adversaries, as he had espied his person, and in the right angle as a robber of his goods. And whether it be going forward or returning from black to white or white to black, the pawn must always go in his right line, and always take in the corner that he findeth in his way. But he may not go on neither side till he hath been in the farthest line of the exchequer, and that he hath taken the nature of the drafts of the queen. And then he is a fears, and then he may go on all sides, cornerwise, from point to point, only as the queen, both fighting and taking whom he findeth in his way. And when he is thus coming unto the place where the nobles, his adversaries, were set, he shall be made white fears and black fears after the point that he is in. And there taketh he the dignity of the queen. And all these things may appear to them that beholden the play of the chess. And ye shall understand that no nobleman ought to have despite of the common people. For it hath been oft times seen that by their virtue and wit, diverse of them have come to right high and great estate as popes, bishops, emperors, and kings, as we have in the history of David that was made king of a shepherd and one of the common people and of many other. And in likewise we read of the contrary, that many noblemen have been brought to misery by their default, as of Gyges, which was right rich of lands and of riches, and was so proud that he went and demanded of the god Apollo if there were any in the world more rich and more happy than he was. And then he heard a voice that issued out of the fossa or pit, of the sacrifices that a people named Aglan Sophida, which were poor of goods and rich of courage, was more acceptable than he which was king. And thus the god Apollo allowed more the sapience and the surety of the poor man and of his little mean than he did the estate and the person of Gyges, nor of his rich means. And it is more to allow a little thing surely pursued than much good taken in fear and dread. And forasmuch as a man of low lineage is by his virtue enhanced, so much the more he ought to be glorious and of good renown. Virgil, that was born in Lombardy of the nation of Mantua, and was of low and simple lineage, yet he was sovereign in wisdom and science, and the most noble of all the poets, of whom the renowned was, is, and shall be during the world. And it happened that another poet asked and demanded of him, wherefore he set not the verses of Homer in his book. And he answered that he should be of right great strength and force that should pluck the club out of Hercules' hands. And this sufficeth the state and drafts of the common people. The eighth chapter and the last of the fourth book, of the apologation and recapitulation of this book. Forasmuch as we see and know that the memory of the people is not retentive, but right forgetful, when some hear long tales and histories which they cannot all retain in their mind or record, 
Therefore I have put in this present chapter all the things above said as shortly as I have con, or am able. First, this play or game was founded in the time of Evel Merodach, king of Babylon, and Xerxes the philosopher, otherwise named Philometor, found it. And the cause why was for the correction of the king, like as it appeareth in three of the first chapters. For the said king was so tyrannous and felon that he might suffer no correction, but slew them and did do put them to death that corrected him, and had then do put to death many right-wise men. Then the people, being sorrowful and right evil pleased of this evil life of the king, prayed and required the philosopher that he would reprise and tell the king of his folly. And then the philosopher answered that he should be dead if he so did. And the people said to him, Certes, thou oughtest sooner will to die to the end that thy renown might come to the people than that the life of the king should continue in evil for lack of thy counsel, or by fault of reprehension of thee, or thou darest not do and show that thou sayest. And when the philosopher heard this, he promised to the people that he would put him in devoir, or would attempt, to correct him. And then he began to think him in what manner he might escape the death and keep to the people his promise. And then thus he made in this manner and ordained the eschecker of sixty-four points, as is aforesaid. And did do make the form of checkers of gold and silver in human figure after the factions and forms as we have devised and showed to you to fore in their chapters, and ordained the moving in the estate after that it is said in the chapters of the eschess. And when the philosopher had thus ordained the play or game, and that it pleased all them that saw it, on a time as the philosopher played on it, the king came and saw it and desired to play at this game. And then the philosopher began to ensign and teach the king the science of the play and the drafts, saying to him first how the king ought to have in himself piety, debonairity, and right-wiseness, as it is said to fore in the chapter of the king. And he assigned to him the estate of the queen, and what manners she ought to have, and then of the alphans as counselors and judges of the realm, and after the nature of the knights, how they ought to be wise, true, and courteous, and all the order of knighthood, and then after the nature of the vicars and rooks, as it appeareth in their chapter, and after this how the common people ought to go each in his office, and how they ought to serve the nobles. And when the philosopher had thus taught and ensigned the king and his nobles by the manner of the play, and had reprehended him of his evil manners, the king demanded him upon pain of death to tell him the cause why and wherefore he had made and found in this play and game, and what thing moved him thereto. And the philosopher, constrained by fear and dread, answered that he had promised to the people which had required him that he should correct and reprise the king of his evil vices. But forasmuch as he doubted the death, and had seen that the king did do slay the sages and wise men that were so hardy to blame him of his vices, he was in great anguish and sorrow how he might find a manner to correct and reprehend the king, and to save his own life. And thus he thought long, and studied, that he found this game, or play, which he hath do set forth for to amend and correct the life of the king, and to change his manners. And he adjusted, with all that he had found in, this game for so much as the lords and nobles, abounding in delights and riches, and enjoying temporal peace, should eschew idleness by playing of this game, and for to give them cause to leave their pensiveness and sorrows in advising and studying this game. And when the king had heard all these causes, he thought that the philosopher had found a good manner of correction. 
and then he thanked him greatly. And thus, by the ensignment and learning of the philosopher, he changed his life, his manners, and all his evil conditions. And by this manner it happened that the king that toforetime had been vicious and disordinate in his living was made just and virtuous, debonair, gracious, and full of virtues unto all people. And a man that liveth in this world without virtues liveth not as a man, but as a beast. And therefore, my right redoubted Lord, I pray Almighty God to save the King our Sovereign Lord, and to give him grace to issue as a king, to abound in all virtues, and to be assisted with all his lords in such wise that his noble realm of England may prosper and abound in virtues, and that sin may be eschewed, justice kept, the realm defended, good men rewarded, malefactors punished, and the idle people put to labor, that he with the nobles of the realm may reign gloriously in conquering his rightful inheritance, that very peace and charity may endure in both his realms, and that merchandise may have his course in such wise that every man eschew sin and increase in virtuous occupations. Praying your good grace to receive this little and simple book made under the hope and shadow of your noble protection by him that is your most humble servant in gree and thank. And I shall pray Almighty God for your long life and welfare which he preserve, and send you the accomplishment of your high, noble, joyous, and virtuous desires. Amen. Finished the last day of March, the year of our Lord God, 1473. So, that's how Caxton ended the first edition of his text. But he changed this in the second edition, not quite a decade later. Everything after the recap of the invention of chess, so the bit addressed to his right-redoubted lord, is cut out and replaced with the following. Quote, Then let every man of what condition he be that readeth or heareth this little book read take thereby example to amend him. End quote. The end. Now, one reason for this is that Caxton's right redoubted lord and patron, George the Duke of Clarence, had in the interim been murdered in the Tower of London, as any fan of Shakespeare's Richard III will recognize. The first edition had also come with a conventional dedication to this noble patron at the beginning, which is also absent from the second edition, replaced with the preface I read back in episode 61, which, like the new conclusion, addresses itself to a broad marketplace of readers. It's very tempting and easy to place too much significance on this, but given that Caxton's second edition comes out in 1483, the year Richard III takes the throne, one rather wonders if he's not feeling a bit disillusioned with the great grace and nobility of the monarch and his family. One wants to see in this example a microcosm of the transition from the medieval to the modern, as the Wars of the Roses are barreling towards their tumultuous end, and the press has arrived to radically reshape what kind of marketplace of ideas the common people can participate in. But, of course, History is not that neatly constructed. Nevertheless, we do see a kind of glorification here of the common person. As I mentioned earlier, that's not actually foreign to the deep medieval tradition of estate satire. 
Uh, it's not an unmedieval sentiment. But it does take on some added significance within the emerging new economics of literary production and mass media. Anyway, I said a couple of episodes ago that I wanted to talk about the sociological place of chess. Uh, I don't actually have a whole lot to say about it. I really just wanted to note that while the literature tends to present chess in an aristocratic context, it was played up and down the social ladder, though as a game, it came with an aura that elevated it above what might be perceived as common tavern games, especially games of chance. It's also a game that was played across gender roles. Women were taught and played chess. Women played with other women, and women and men played together. Women are even shown within the romances beating men at chess games. Uh, and this is not treated typically as emasculating for the man to lose. It really just makes the woman more desirable, demonstrating her intelligence and virtue. Within the stories, chess provides an occasion for an unmarried man and woman to be alone together, or as alone as you can get in a medieval household, uh, and to converse with each other. And there's no reason to assume this doesn't reflect a courtship strategy in the real world as well. This is one of the great capacities of games, that they are a site where cultural and social divisions can be bridged. That might be courtship between two people, or it might be bonding with a merchant or shipmate or an emissary who doesn't speak your language. A technical term for this, as I learned from a 2016 article in the Oxford Journal of Archaeology, is social lubricant. And yes, alcohol is absolutely a category of social lubricant, and alcohol and games and psychoactive substances share this quality that they enable people to enter into a state where the normal rules and conditions are not eliminated, but softened. Um, this is called not a liminal state, but a liminoid state. In a game, you can engage in aggressive, hostile competition, but without the consequences of that aggression that you'd have outside the special cultural space of the game. And likewise, a servant can beat their master in a game, a woman can triumph over a man, and this outcome does not create the disruption of social norms that it would have outside of the liminoid activity. We have an example of this in an 11th century narrative. The following scene is found in a Latin poem written by a Bavarian monk around the year 1030. The poem, which we only have a fragment of, is apparently a heroic epic and has been given the title Ruedlieb by scholars. In this narrative, we have a scene of chess playing. After a war, a victorious king sends the protagonist of the poem off to the court of the defeated king bearing the terms of peace. When he gets his audience with the king, the king challenges him to a game of chess. Here is H.J.R. Murray's prose translation of this scene from the poem. The king, calling for the board, orders a chair to be placed for himself and orders me to sit on the couch opposite to play with him. This I strongly refuse, saying, it is a terrible thing for a poor man to play with a king. But when I see that I cannot withstand him, I agree to play, intending to be beaten by him. I say, what profit is it to poor me to be beaten by a king? But I fear, sir, that you will soon be wroth with me if fortune help me to win. 
The king laughed and answered jestingly, There is no need, my dear man, to be afraid about that. Even if I never win, I shall not become more angry. But know clearly that I wish to play with you, for I wish to learn what unknown moves you will make. Immediately, both the king and I moved carefully, and, as luck would have it, I won three times, to the great surprise of many of his nobles. He lays down a wager against me, and would not let me lay down anything against him. He gives what he had wagered, so that not one coin remained. Many follow, anxious to avenge him, proposing bets and despising my bets, sure of losing nothing and trusting much to the uncertainty of fortune. They help one another and do harm by helping too much. They are hindered while they consult variously. Through their disputes, I win quickly three times, for I would not play any more. They now wish to give me what they had wagered. At first I refused, for I thought it disgraceful to enrich myself at their expense and to impoverish them. I said, I am not accustomed to win anything by play. They say, while you are with us, live as we do. When you get home again, live there as you like. Murray adds that later in the poem, when the king sends the hero away, he says to him, I think that you will always be fond of this game, by which you have shod your shoes so well. If playing games is a means of interaction across social boundaries, then it makes sense that we would see board games emerging in Neolithic societies at the point when social stratification and division of labor are becoming the norm. And it's not surprising that we would see board games remaining popular in imperial and then post-imperial and then feudal societies in antiquity and the Middle Ages. So when we see board games, uh, excepting a handful of elite games like chess and Go, increasingly confined to a childhood activity, a historical trend which begins with the mass commercial production of games in the 18th century, is that because of reduced stratification of society, uh, among adults at least? Or if it's not egalitarianism, then maybe it's a greater class insularity. Perhaps there's less cause or desire to interact across social boundaries. Children might well still mix across class and vocational boundaries, and if not that, then certainly across age boundaries, and board games remain useful social lubricants there, uh, including between children and adults. Might that be why board games become so strongly associated with childish things? Assuming there's any truth to this interaction across social barriers aspect to board games, then I'm not sure how to interpret the current resurgence in adult board gaming. I'd be tempted to say that in our current economy, it might be something about providing a bonding element for friend groups who have quite divergent careers and income levels. Even if you might class all of them as broadly middle class, I think a lot of adult millennials can have quite different levels of economic anxiety and stability, which can produce social friction and unease, especially with friend groups that have perhaps persisted since college or even earlier. You also have probably a historically high level of the mixing of parents and childless people within the same peer groups uh, with this generation. And if board games sit adjacent to alcohol and drugs as a liminoid lubricant, then a night in playing games rather than a night out at the bars or clubs 
might accommodate people who have kids alongside those who don't. But that line of reasoning really only seems plausible if you're looking at board games in isolation. Once you remember that people have been playing cards together, pretty much unbroken through the last millennium and with similar social functions, then the social change explanation loses its power for why board games have waxed and waned in popularity. Indeed, I think you probably have to look to trends in media and consumer culture, to the game as an attractive object to own and to handle, to understand the trend. There might also be something about the popularity of video games over the last four decades, helping to prime people for learning new and complex systems of rules, but again, card games have not been short on complexity for centuries, and that has not been a significant problem in their popularity. Uh, I think the League of Gentlemen have demonstrated this quite well. Don't you know any card games, Doc? Yes. Uh, whist, Knockout Whist, Rummy, Pontoon. No, come on, let's have a game of Go, Johnny, Go, 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 Go. Fine idea, young man. I'll just sort through these. Look, I don't know how to play that one either. Oh, well, everyone knows Go, Johnny, Go, 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 Go. I don't. You do? It's like a cross between Hoover and Eight Men Down. Well, I don't know how to play those either. <laughs> it's all right. We'll just have to explain the rules to you then, Doc. It's very simple. Jacks are worth ten, kings are worth three. Apart from one eye, jacks which are wild cards. Yeah, but we'll come to those in a minute. Round one, you get a hand of nine. Round two, a hand of seven. Now, twos are wild cards. We'll come to those in a moment. Apart from diamonds, which retain their face value. Except the king of diamonds, obviously. Yeah, obviously. We play in sequence unless you can match a pair or play a card in ascending or descending order. If you can, that's a go, Johnny, go, 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 go. You stand up with the ball of cards on the table, shout, go, Johnny, go, 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 go! The winner is the man with the most tricks after 15 hands. You'll pick up the rest as we play. Shall we say pound around? Speaking of card games, they have not been left out of the game night gaming renaissance, with all kinds of new games with special custom decks filling the market. My final game recommendation of this series is one of these, and it's kind of the game that got me into the hobby and on into the board game side. About five years ago, I was visiting my brother in Berkeley, California, where he lived just a few blocks away from Games of Berkeley, a 40-year-old store there in the heart of town. While I was browsing, a clerk came over and recommended a card game called Gloom, and I was uncharacteristically won over by his sales pitch and bought it, and loved it, and started really paying attention to this whole deeper catalog of gaming. I won't go into detail about the gameplay, uh, it would be about as easy to convey as the rules of Go Johnny Go 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 Go, but the basic theme of Gloom is that you as a player are in charge of a family of weirdos who have stepped right out of the pages of an Edward Gorey book or a Charles Adams comic panel, and your task is to inflict various fanciful miseries upon them, ultimately hoping that they die with a lot of points worth of misery on them but you have to watch out because other players might play nice things on them and ruin all that lovely tragedy you've been trying to create. The game has a very Edward Gorey sense of humor. The tragedies are things like was startled by snakes, was disgraced at a dance, was pestered by poltergeists, was galled by gangrene. And the causes of death are things like drowned in a bog or was pushed down the stairs. And a big part of the fun, for me anyway, is making up a little story every time you play one of these cards onto a character to elaborate on how the tragedy befell them. That has no effect on the score or who wins, but I think it's a key element of the overall experience. 
I've seen Gloom criticized for not having a lot of strategic depth, and that may well be a reasonable complaint, but if you take it as a kind of improv game, it's great, uh, at least if you have friends who have a macabre sense of humor. And if you balk at the roughly $60 investment required for most of the board games I've recommended so far, then Gloom is only about 20 bucks, and you might even be able to pick up an old copy of the first edition for a fair bit less, and that version still plays just fine. So if you're not there already, perhaps Gloom could be your entry point into the wonderful world of game night games as it was for me. Anyway, I'm sure some gaming cultural historian has a whole book on the socioeconomic factors behind board gaming as a hobby, um, but I have not yet read that book. And while I would be interested to read a book like that, and if you have one to recommend to me, send me a tweet, uh, I think in the immediate future, I have a lot of other reading to do to prepare us for a 2019 full of more medieval death trip. The show is going to take a winter holiday for the month of January, and we'll be back in February with some more narrative and historical texts to get us back in the usual swing of things after this month of discursive chess lore. Patreon supporters, I will try to put a thing together for you during January so you won't have a whole MDT-less month, uh, though it could be a chance to take in the audiobook of Jordanus's Wonders of the East if you haven't already. And everyone else, I hope you might consider becoming a patron and helping the show out in the new year. The contributions of my patrons really do make a material difference in what I can do. So check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. You can also tweet to me at mdtpodcast or send email to patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. At that same website, you can also get more information on this and every episode of the show and see some images, medieval and otherwise, that I've dug up to illustrate each episode with. I'd like to expand the website and make it a bit more of a potential resource for our texts, um, but I think that might have to be a patronage stretch goal for 2019. I'll be back with you again in the new year. Until then, may only happy events be played upon your character card, and may all your pawns be promoted, and thanks for listening.